to the podcast, Trustees and Presidents Managing College Athletics. I'm Karen Weaver. Few are more connected to the sports industry than Val Ackerman, currently the commissioner of the Big East Conference. Named the commissioner in 2013, Val is an attorney by training, but she is deeply connected to the sport of basketball, both nationally and internationally. Val was recognized by the Sports Business Journal in 2016 as one of the 50 most influential people in the world of sports business. She's a member of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, the Board of Directors for U.S. Soccer, and the Advisory Board of the NYU Tisch Institute for Sports Management, Media, and Business. Our conversation revolved around how the governance structures in the Big East Conference work, the role of conference presidents and college presidents, within their conferences, and what she is keeping her eye on as college sports undergoes unprecedented changes. Here's our conversation. And Val, thanks for joining us today on the podcast to talk about the Big East Conference. Sure, Karen. Great to be with you. Absolutely. And I wanted to start with some of the questions that we've talked about in advance. A little bit about the governance structure of the Big East and how it was set up when you were first hired as commissioner in 2013 and then looking at it today. Is there any difference? Um, not, not much of one. Um, I think what we've got is pr- pretty standard in college sports. The, uh, the highest entity that, that, um, that we have here from a governance standpoint is our board of directors, and that's made up of the presidents of all of our schools. So when the um, Big East reconfigured in 2013, it came out of that with 10 schools. So we have a 10-person board of directors. Um, we have an executive committee of our board that was formed shortly after the reconfiguration. That's made up of three presidents. Uh, we have a board chair and a vice chair, and they both serve on the executive committee. We have um, an audit and finance committee of the board that's responsible for um, managing our audit and for many, many, approving our budget and for many other financial matters. Um, and so those, that's really the core um, governance team. That, that said, we also have, as all leagues do, um, athletics directors who run the day-to-day. And um, that group has a rotating chair. It's about a one-year term in our case for the AD chair. Um, we um, sort of regularly talk to our ADs more than the presidents because they're really in charge of the day-to-day operation of our athletics departments. Um, <clears throat> the meetings, the last thing I'll say is the meetings that we run um, <clears throat> excuse me, involve uh, three meetings a year of the board, two are in joint session with the ADs. And then one of the meetings, our spring meeting, is just with the board um, by itself without the uh, athletics directors in attendance. The ADs have uh, regular conference calls, and then um, they have a big meeting in the, in the summer, which we do with our SWAs, and our, our league's very basketball-oriented, so we include our men's and women's basketball coaches in, in that meeting. Um, the rest of our coaches meet throughout the year, but not, not together with the, with, the, uh, with the ADs like the basketball coaches do. So in broad strokes, those are kind of our key, um, our key groups and a little bit about the, uh, the regularity of their, of their meetings. 
For, for our listeners who may not remember what the uh, upset was in the, in the college athletic conference world back in 2011, 2012, 2013, can you give us a quick synopsis of what this newer, newer version of the Big East looks like today and what happened back then? Um, well, yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, I, I didn't live it. Uh, I'll right. confess. I, I came in in the wake of, but um, in in you know in very general terms, the uh, the Big East was formed in '79 with um, I, I think seven schools, and then it grew to as many as 16 through the uh, '80s and '90s. Uh, started out as a basketball-focused conference, meaning that was the um, the lead sport. Other sports were added, and then um, it became uh, more football-oriented. And I guess to just put it in in simple terms, um, because of football interests, schools started to leave the conference beginning um, in, I'd say, the 90s. And many, many actually ended up with the Atlantic Coast Conference, um, in large part because of their football aspirations. So there was a lot of change in the conference over a period of years. Schools were leaving. Other schools were coming in to replace them. From what I hear, what I'm told, there became a, a pretty um, a wide divergence of, of agendas um, on, on the part of the football schools on one side, the, quote, basketball schools on the other side. And then this sort of culminated, uh, as it relates to the new Big East, in 2012 with the decision by seven uh, basketball schools, um, including some that were charter members, to leave um, the old Big East and to form their new, uh, a new conference um, that would be basketball focused and would not sponsor the sport of football. So that was the seven so-called Catholic schools. Um, they added Butler, Creighton, and Xavier. Uh, two of those three are, in fact, um, Catholic schools to form a new conference in tw that um, launched in 2013. The 10 were able to secure the rights to use the Big East name. Um, they were able to secure the uh, contract to play the men's basketball tournament at Madison Square Garden. And importantly, Fox at that time was launching a new network, Fox Sports 1, and needed programming. So the new Big East was able to uh, enter into a long-term national television agreement with Fox Sports. That was the safety net, uh, if you will, and the revenue stream and the, um, the exposure that kind of gave them the courage they needed to make this leap. So that was started, that was in 2013. I, I became commissioner of the new Big East shortly after that. The old league, um, because of this negotiation, had to change its name. That's now the American Athletic Conference. And uh, so now here we are in year seven uh, of, our, of, our new, of our new composition. You know, you're leading me right in nicely into the next question, which is tell us a little bit about the various revenue streams that the conference today collects on behalf of, the, of its members. The main one is from national television, as I just noted. Um, the, you know, the Big East has a entered into in 2013 uh, had a 12-year deal with Fox Sports, so that's our primary revenue stream. Um, our other revenue streams include um, units from the NCAA men's basketball tournament, um, which is um, one of the uses of the money that the National Network Partners of the NCA, um, CBS and Turner, pay for the rights to March Madness. 
Um, we, we also have money coming in from uh, ticket sales, from our conference championship events, most notably our men's basketball tournament. Um, and then we have um, some ancillary revenues that we get from licensing. We get a conference grant from the NCA to do um, some of our operational uh, requirements on behalf of our schools. Um, and there's a couple of other lesser revenue streams um, in there. But again, the, the lead one for the conference anyway is our, um, is our, our television rights uh, revenues from Fox. And they're coming up for renegotiation in 2023? There, it'll be in 2025 right. is okay. when the agreement runs out, yeah. Okay, okay. And, and just give us some insight. Who will act on the conference's behalf as to lead those negotiations? Uh, I, the, the commissioners, uh, you know, I would uh, and my staff, we have uh, people on our staff who work with our networks. We also would use outside counsel for that. We would likely get a consultant involved. And then we would work closely um, with, um, I'm get, you know, probably a group of our ADs and presidents just to get it going, um, to have kind of a committee approach to it. And then ultimately, whatever we do would be subject to the approval of our board. Right. And I would think that'd be a pretty consuming process. Do you start that a couple of years in advance? I would think, yep. Yeah. I would think that's, that's typically the, the timeline. Absolutely. So the Big East holds a unique place in NCAA governance structure being non-football, and you represent the Big East in NCAA governance structure. So tell, tell us about the roles that you currently hold in the NCAA and how they translate to advocacy for the conference. Well, I, I do, um, uh, you know, uh, play kind of a varied role. I um, have been on NCA committees. I'm currently chairing uh, a major NCA committee that's looking at name, image, and likeness. I'm co-chairing that with Gene Smith from uh, the Ohio State University. Um, but, you know, the good news, so I'm, yes, I'm involved, and I uh, actually just got back from uh, meetings at the NCA convention uh, as well as uh, a separate meeting involving a subset of the NCA commissioners. So when commissioners are, are meeting, I'm, I'm the one in the room. But the good news is we've got many representatives from the conference scattered across the NCA governance in terms of committee roles. Um, I think right now we've got over 30 Big East representatives, either from our conference office, so that means uh, others on my staff, as well as at our schools, are serving on uh, just a variety of committees within the NCA uh, membership. Um, it, it runs from the board of directors. Uh, President Jack DeJoya from Georgetown is currently serving as the Big East representative on the um, D1 board. He also serves on the board of governors for the NCA, which represents all three divisions. Um, the NCA council, which is the principal um, legislative body for D1, has a representative from every conference. And Mark Jackson, uh, the AD at Villanova, is our current representative uh, on that important body. Um, we have representation on the Men's Basketball Oversight Committee. We have representation on other sport committees. We have representation on other of the council standing committees. Uh, again, either somebody on my staff or somebody from one of our institutions. So we're... Um, you know, we're in um, actually a, a pretty good place in terms of our engagement 
um, with the membership generally, and you know, with that, we have the opportunity to uh, to to weigh in importantly on some of the critical issues of the day, <clears throat> both in terms of the um, you know the day-to-day -day operation of college sports, but also some long-term matters. I think that's a really overlooked component as to the value that conference staff brings to all those committee roles that you play. If, if you were um, uh, in, let's say, initiating or bringing a new president in the Big East up to speed, and you wanted to try to get them to understand how valuable and important having all these seats at the table are, what kinds of things would you tell them? Well, just that. I mean, we, um, you know, the conference office is a very helpful conduit for the NCA national office back to the schools. I mean, that's one of the functions of a conference office is to disseminate information, try to break things down, um, you know, try to have smaller group discussions with schools versus, you know, all 351 D1 schools trying to absorb all this information from one place. So, um, you know, we make it a point really to emphasize to our schools the value of their participation on these various committees. Um, whenever there's a committee vacancy, all, all the committees have um, designated spots depending on what subdivision you're in, for example. Um, and these, these, you know, these positions all generally have term limits. So when a seat comes up, the, co the conference office would find out about that from the NCA staff. And then we would in turn um, disseminate, you know, the uh, information about those vacancies onto schools. And we encourage our schools to put in, you know, to apply. There's a there's a formal nomination process if you want to be on a committee. The um, there's literally a committee on committees <laughs> within the NCA <laughs> that's, you know, would would sort of go through and try to figure out, who, you know, what conferences turn, for example, it might be to serve on a particular committee. I will give the NCA credit. They make diversity a big, um, a, you know, a priority in terms of committee representation and composition. Okay. And so they always have an eye out for, you know, for that when they're populating committees or filling vacancies or replacing people. Um, but we really do stress it. Um, I stress it at every level to our ADs. Our SWAs are actually a very vital cog in that process. So it's not that hard of a point to make, you know, and the question really is who has time because it does yeah. take work. It's extra, you know, it's, we don't get paid extra for being on committees. I mean, this is, this is on top of the day job. So it's really a function of who has time, who has interest, and, and of course, who's qualified. And just for the listeners, define what you mean by diversity, because that goes beyond race and gender, right? It, it goes to the type of subdivision you're in, the type of conference you're in. Just talk a little bit about that. Well, you, you said it well. I mean, gender and racial diversity are, are critically important, of course, um, and a point of emphasis. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, but, you know, but in, in D1, for example, there are three subdivisions. You've got the, uh, you know, the, the, the football bowl subdivision, you have the football championship subdivision, and then there are 11 schools in what we call the basketball subdivision. So, um, you know, they do try, you know, maybe on a certain committee that it can only be a football championship subdivision nominee that would have a shot. Right. Um, and so they, you know, and then sometimes they base it on part of the country. There's, I think, an interest in seeing, uh, again, a mix of geographies represented. Um, to your point, you know, big schools and small schools have often divergent interests. So there would be an interest in, in balancing that out. 
um, if a particular conference has been on a particular committee for a long time, they might want to rotate that around, give some other league a chance. So there's a lot of, it's actually complicated and there's a lot of factors um, that go into it. But I think for us, the good news is we have a, some really well-regarded people working uh, at our schools and in our conference office. And so I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say, I think that's recognized by others in the membership. So um, we, we don't often have to lobby people about the qualifications of our people. It, it more has to do sometimes with those other factors, whether we get on or not. Yeah, that's a really helpful um, explanation because I don't think people realize how difficult it is to try to in, enforce that diversity of viewpoints and regions and conferences across those committees sometimes. So um, thank you for that. Um, uh, one of the things I was wondering was, could you share a time when your board has been effective at advocating for positive change on behalf of the Big East? Well, you know, I think, um, I, I don't know that I can think of a specific example, but as I mentioned, um, we, we do have a spot now on the NCA board of directors and governors in the form of President DeJoya from Georgetown, who's um, highly capable, extraordinarily well-respected, very engaged with athletics, um, at Georgetown and you know he and I actually served together on the Knight Commission on intercollegiate athletics for many years that was one of my first forays into um, you know uh, college sports and and the important issues um, before I took this position at the Big East so we've known each other for many years and I can just tell you he's a really capable guy and he he's at the table so um, you know, that, that gives the Big East a presence in the room on some major decisions. What I will say is I do believe at the board level that the presidents are keeping their eye not just on their conference interests, but on what's good for college sports. Right. I, I think it, you know, and I think all of us do at some level. I mean, I served on the Men's Basketball Oversight Committee for four years. Um, and yeah, on one hand, you know, when I went in that room, I was thinking about, okay, what would be best for the Big East here? But at the same time, I'm thinking, well, what's really good for college basketball? Right. Um, and at the end of the day, I think most people in the committee room are really, they have that, they have those ideas in their head. What's going to be best for the greater good here? That they should. And if they don't, they should. Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, that that's how I would, I, mean, I can't give you a particular example about it, but, you know, but issues relating to revenue, for example, or expenses, you know, the smaller leagues who don't have the resources of, say, the Autonomy Five would probably have a different perspective on something yeah. than, you know, a large, you know, conference with sort of large state institutions. Yeah. Um, as I said, I would sort of say issues that have to do with expense would be where conference interests would probably more come to the fore. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So in the unfortunate situation when a conference gains or loses a member institution, what's the impact on you and your staff and how do you prepare financial projections, et cetera, when that happens? Well, again, the new Big East is the product of just that. I mean, this was the product of, of our schools, um, you know, withdrawing from their, their prior conference. And so that was, um, you know, had, it was a seismic uh, happening um, it involved, it was a major financial transaction. Um, it, you know, that lawyers were involved because it was, con it's contractual when that happens. Um, 
you know, you're getting out of one agreement, you're entering into another. So it's a very, very significant thing. Um, and it's, you know, it's change. I mean, change can be very, um, you know, it can be hard to adapt to. So I can't, you know, I can't personally speak to a, you know, a withdrawal, for example, what it would be like if one of our schools withdrew, that's doesn't seem likely. Um, but I, I can speak about a game. We announced in June that the University of Connecticut was going to rejoin our conference starting this July. Right. So we have had to deal in the last year plus with um, a new a new member, the entry of a new, well, uh, you know, an old member re-entering really. But that I can just say that did involve a lot of discussion internally. It was a negotiation with Connecticut. Um, you know, it was an important legal transaction. We, from our end, used uh, a law firm to assist us. Uh, we hired a media consultant to give us some additional information about the value to the conference of expanding generally. And so, you know, and now we're, we've been working for the last several months on the integration, which, um, you know, is everything from branding to scheduling to redoing our letterhead, to add another logo, to the interior decor of our office, um, to working in a new set of coaches and administrators into conference governance per our earlier discussion. Right. So uh, it is, you know, it is a pretty um, involved process. Um, and, you know, but it's been done. I mean, there's definitely a template because um, conference um, realignment has, has been a kind of a fact of life for the last 10 years or so. Yeah. I think it's slowed down in the last few, but it's certainly something that's happened before and I'm sure what will happen again in the future. So every conference has to be ready for that. Absolutely. So in kind of wrapping up our conversation, it, it's a time, as you well know, of great uncertainty in college sports on so many levels. What indicators are you yourself closely monitoring? Uh, I, I would say the thing on everyone's mind now, more, more than anything as it relates to um, the environment, would be, you know, name, image, and likeness, the pay-for-play debate, the legal landscape around those issues, the legislative uh, landscape around those issues. Um, so I'd say that's sort of its own bucket. I would describe that as probably the biggest source of uncertainty right now in college athletics. Yeah. Um, the, the other area, more from a business standpoint, perhaps, um, and maybe, you know, with maybe a little bit more certainty based on history, but nonetheless, some uncertainty because of the changing landscape is the media rights environment. Um, you know, we talked earlier about how our conference, for example, the bulk of our revenues come in from television. Right. The, the major conferences, it's the same. And, in, you know, in the major conferences, the television rights fees are largely attributable to football which is the big revenue driver in college sports. Basket, men's basketball is sort of second by a lot, but, you know, but more than the other sports. So uh, I think everybody's keeping an eye on, on the, um, the media rights landscape, um, the changing um, consumer trends in terms of young people, for example, not watching things on their TV sets anymore, the um, unbundling of cable packages, the rise of digital platforms that were unknown a few years ago, what that means for sports properties, what that means as, you know, as a revenue source, et cetera. Uh, I would say, you know, it's probably right up there as well. 
terms of what's on the mind of, um, of people in college sports who are trying to figure out their futures, you know, where revenues are coming from, um, et cetera, and, you know, and then back, you know, on revenues related topics like the future of the ticket sales environment, are fans still coming to games, et cetera, um, those sorts of business interests, I think are, um, you know, are important. And then, you know, you layer on that all the important issues related to student athlete welfare and so on, mental health concerns, injuries, et cetera. Um, you know, it's a pretty full they keep administrators up at night. <laughs> well, you've been listening to Val Ackerman, who is the fifth uh, commissioner of the Big East Conference and also the founding president of the Women's National Basketball Association, also known as the WNBA. Val, thanks for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. Great, Karen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Student Athletes NIL, however, is inextricably tethered to technology, and this makes the value and protection of this right incredibly complex. The social media landscape that all student athletes today live in is grossly underregulated, leaving many of the users without protection when their NIL is misappropriated. Additionally, a student athlete will have to monitor the use of his or her potential misappropriation and ensure that he or she is compliant with this myriad of state laws that may or may not recognize these rights. The assumption that student athletes, many of whom already spend upwards of 60 hours a week on athletically related activities, will have the time to monitor the use of their NIL in order to protect their profit is absurd. The notion of expecting student athletes to potentially hire an agent to manage their brand on top of perhaps an attorney to ensure compliance with this patchwork of state laws is unreasonable. That was Kendall Spencer. Kendall was a former national chair of the Student Athlete Advisory Committee of the NCAA. He is currently a third-year law student at Georgetown University Law Center, where he's a technology law and policy scholar focusing on privacy and election security. Throughout law school, he has trained competitively as a track and field athlete with the expectation of competing in the 2020 Olympic Games. In watching the Senate hearing in February about the names, images, and likenesses debate, I noticed several things in the conversation that revolved around the timetable, how comprehensive the NIL legislation might look, what it might look like, and in terms of who would benefit the most, whether it was the institution or the student athlete. But I want to draw your attention to something else that has consumed me recently. And that's in the interest around other forms of privacy and control that student athletes currently did not have. And that's the issue of medical data and additional marketing and promotional considerations. So I took a look at the recent collective bargaining agreement with the WNBA. Uh, these concepts, I believe, will be further replicated in future collective bargaining agreements, but the WNBA just happened to get there first. So the first thing that the WNBA did for its players was make some definitions, which I think are relative to this particular discussion. One, a picture means all forms of audio, video, data, or image reproductions, and distribution or transmission, whether now, existing, or hereafter created, including, but not limited to, still photographs, motion pictures, video cassettes, etc., etc. They also define what the word player attributes mean, and they define it as a player's name, nickname, 
picture, portrait, image, signature, voice, or other identifiable attributes to the extent that she or he has rights within. And finally, and I think this is really interesting, in exchange for additional marketing and promotional compensation, player agrees to perform marketing and promotional services for such team, in addition to any services required by this player's contract, during the term of the team marketing and promotional agreement. They require that the player will live in the team market, require the player would make additional appearances on behalf of the team or its sponsors or licensees, and permit the team or its sponsors or licensees to use such players' attributes individually on a non-exclusive basis. And finally, require such player to comply with reasonable content creation and social media distribution requests of the player by the team or sponsor. The whole discussion about names, images, and likenesses has been around monetization, but there are larger issues surrounding who owns and can access their NILs created quote-unquote in-house and used to generate revenue on college teams, whether or not a college athlete plays for one season or for four years. As the WNBA CBA states, player attributes are exchanged for additional marketing and promotional compensation. To me, this begs the question, we ask our players to constantly do community service, promotional outreach on behalf of our, our institutions or organizations that our institution is sponsoring, like breast cancer awareness, and yet our athletes receive nothing in return for that other than good photos online. Who owns those photos? Do we have the right to use the player's name, image, and likenesses in support of causes that we promote, not what they promote? I'm also concerned about the further erosion of athlete medical data. Uh, we seem to be doing a very good job of collecting performance data, biometric data, but we're not necessarily doing a great job of protecting that data. As far as I can tell, the NCAA only has one standard when it comes to medical practices, and that covers the relationship of diagnosis, management, and return to play. There's nothing about biometric and other physical data that athletic programs collect and store on the athlete, either in the training room or in the athletic communications office. We know that there are federal guidelines regarding what student data can be released to the general public, and schools know they can get into serious trouble by not taking care of students' data. With the amount of personal information that athletic departments are keeping on individual athletes, and some universities have over a thousand athletes, it is a massive challenge. It's time for the NCAA to mandate that the schools treat athlete biometric and medical data the same way recruiting violations are tracked. It's disingenuous to say that you care more about health and welfare if you don't include privacy controls. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000 foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I will strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and intercollegiate athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on Forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.